Driven by the push of regulation and reporting requirements, and by the pool of stakeholder and investment demand, environmental, social, and governance factors have become an integral part of M&A activity. Until recently, environmental factors have been the primary driver and always hit the headlines. But the war in Ukraine has pushed social and governance factors to the forefront, changing ESG expectations in ways no one expected at the beginning of the year. With M&A activity rising sharply in Asia in 2021, today we'll take a look at why ESG has become so important to deal-making in the region and discuss some of the ESG factors companies and investors need to consider when executing transactions. My name is Nanda Lau. I'm a corporate M&A partner based in HSF Shanghai, and I'll be your host today. Our guests today are Joseph Fisher, our corporate partner based in Tokyo, and Ernst Miller, our ESG and natural resources law specialist based in Johannesburg. Joe and Ernst, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Nanda. Thanks, Nanda. A 2021 study conducted by Baker Tilly showed that 83% of business leaders say they conduct due diligence on ESG issues at investment and M&A targets. So Joe announced, why has ESG become such an important consideration for M&A? So as you've pointed out, it is clearly a major driver of M&A at the moment. I think it is probably still the E from ESG that is getting the most attention. And, you know, one of the main drivers we can see there is the disposal of fossil fuel assets and the acquisition of renewables assets. So that's clearly driving M&A behavior across the world. But we're also seeing it in other areas as well. You've touched on the war in Ukraine. And without going too deeply into that, I think it is a fair point to say that the withdrawal of many companies from Russia as a result of the war in Ukraine is also an ESG issue. But even before that, you know, we've been seeing the S and the G coming. You know, some M&A that we have seen can be example in the consumer sector. There are a number of big consumer players that are buttressing their brands by acquiring smaller rivals that have a brand value that they really like. And maybe that brand value is tied to certain laudable business practices and the big rival who acquires them makes a specific announcement when doing so that they're going to leave the target company to run itself as it sees fit, you know, in continuation with its values. Thanks, Joe. I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. From our perspective, it really depends on how a business wants to be perceived and counterintuitively how the world perceives a business and its operations. The factors that come into play obviously very much depend on the jurisdictions where a company is headquartered and then also where it conducts its business. Based on those two underlying issues, we see a number of push and pull factors that are playing an increasingly important role in M&A transactions. Push factors would be those that your stakeholders, the narratives that your stakeholders are pushing. Matters related to uh, disclosure, greenwashing, and climate action and class action litigation, I think, are increasingly important push action factors that are affecting M&A considerations. But then you also get the pull factors on the other side, where governments are increasingly imposing specific regulatory requirements that shape the way in which we do business. And I think in an M&A context, it's becoming increasingly important, whether you are the target planning to sell, that you must appreciate that the counterparties are going to take a look 
at these factors because that has a direct impact on, on your attractiveness in the market. Thanks, Joe and Ernst. I definitely agree. I think for corporates, ESG has become such an important strategic and management issues from the perspective of increasing mid to long-term corporate value. And so companies, I think, need to integrate ESG consideration into its own m and strategy and to ensure that the targets they are buying are operating sustainably in addressing ESG risk, including with respect to regulatory compliance and also reputational risk management. The pace of regulatory changes and consideration of ESG factors has been greatest in Europe and in the US. So how about the ESG issues in APAC countries deal-making? For example, how are ESG issues affecting M&A in APAC countries? Joe, do you want to give us some thoughts? Definitely. So, you know, for example, Japan, China and South Korea have all pledged to go carbon neutral over the next three to four decades. And that government decision alone, you can see, is going to have huge knock-on effects to industry in terms of the assets that they invest in, those that they sell, and a whole lot of implications down the chain. And I would expect that Asia will look to see what Europe has been doing and pick some of the things that it likes from there and adjust its strategies accordingly over the next few years. I mean, finally, you know, private capital is very much on the rise within Asia. And a lot of private capital are saying that their investors are wanting to put their money with someone that has a sound ESG policy. And I think, you know, my final thought on that would be that we've already seen some of this happening in Asia, and we would certainly expect it to continue and become an increasingly prevalent part of deal making in the region going forward. Thanks, Joe. Ernst? Yeah, I think Joe is right. I find it actually quite interesting that in a Goldman Sachs report that was published six weeks ago, they suggested ESG policy development and APAC is actually following in Europe's footsteps and has resulted in an improved corporate disclosure. And according to them, APAC's ESG policies have actually doubled in the last five years. So we now have 20% of global ESG policies are from the APAC region. When we compare that to Western Europe, that's at 44% and 4% for North America. So that suggests to me that the APAC region, contrary to being a follower, might in some respect actually be a leader on the ESG narrative. And some research has actually found that low carbon emitting countries in the APAC region are trading at a 28% higher premium than companies that are not performing well on the carbon scale. And I think that for companies that are headquartered in the APAC region to increasingly do business in the rest of the world, they'll have to take a look at the regulations that are being developed in Europe and the US to see what requirements they would need to comply with. Key examples would be the way that you structure your supply chains and to make sure that the different role players in your supply chains are following sound environmental and social governance principles in order to ensure that you operate a sustainable business. Thanks, Anand. I'm actually also seeing this trend in China with investors, particularly our foreign investors investing into China, focusing more on the ESG elements of the deals and giving ESG due diligence a much higher priority than before. I think the trend in China is both driven by the global developments that we just discussed and also China's own recent government policy direction towards this space. For example, just a few years back, ESG were not considered by many Chinese companies, but the reason pushed by Chinese policymakers and regulators to move the system towards uh, green growth 
in China's commitment to carbon neutrality in 2060 made Chinese companies increasingly sensitive to ESG considerations in deal making. Our Global M&A Outlook 2022 report discusses the impact of ESG and many other crucial issues in detail. Download the report now at hsf.com. You can find the link in the broadcast description. Now back to our discussion with Joe and Ernst. So thank you both for the big picture, looking at why ESG is driving so many M&A deals. Now let's look at the deals themselves. So based on your experience, how are ESG considerations changing the nature of transactions being done? Are there any interesting examples that you can share with us? I mean, I suppose one of the obvious ones which we've touched on already is that there's a lot of churn in the energy space at the moment with certain assets coming out of fashion and certain assets coming into fashion. But in terms of specific deal terms that we're seeing, as mentioned, I'm based in Japan. So a lot of my work is helping Japanese companies go out. And speaking from my personal experience, I know that some of the most active Japanese deal-making companies have things like, for example, a very rigid set of anti-bribery and corruption warranties that must be obtained from sellers and targets on any transaction that they do. Another specific example would be that there are certain big Japanese companies that require a risk report separate from financial due diligence and legal due diligence. They require a risk analysis on any new piece of M&A, which they do. And again, this is a fairly recent introduction and it's driven by wanting to make sure that the companies that they're investing in you know, are good citizens in their jurisdictions and acting in the right way. So those would be a couple of specific examples which I've seen come in directly as a result of ESG pressures in the last few years. I think from my side, Joe and Nanda, in addition to the terms that we'll see included in contracts would be the due diligence processes that precede the actual negotiation of the contracts phase. And there disclosure and performance is going to play an increasingly important role. Earlier in this conversation, I touched on the different supply chain due diligence laws that they are developing in the EU region. And owing to the manner in which the requirements under these laws are structured, they actually have an extraterritorial or extra-jurisdictional application, meaning that anybody who works in a supply chain for a company that is regulated under these laws need to make sure that they comply with the requirements or the company who is regulated by these laws may face certain penalties. And I think if companies based in APAC wish to continue doing business with companies that are headquartered in these jurisdictions and you want to make yourself more attractive and more competitive, you need to ensure that you also comply with these requirements that are imposed in jurisdictions where you don't necessarily have business. But again, I'd like to go back to the foundations of ESG and why ESG has become so important and that is that it's all about the sustainability of the business, which again speaks to the supply chain due diligence requirements where you actually would like to see exactly how a company goes about its business to make sure that there aren't any skeletons in the closet. So I think going back to the question on how ESG will continue to influence APAC dealmaking, I think that it will be fundamental to the whole process because it will be the premise from which all negotiations take place depending on what you find during your environmental and human rights corporate sustainability due diligence processes. Thanks both. Finally, let's take a look at what 
we can expect for the remainder of 2022 and beyond? How will ESG continue to influence APAC dealmaking? Joe and Ernst? Thank you, Nanda. Three things that I will be keeping an eye on as I'm interested to see how it plays out. The first is, as touched upon, the decision about exiting from Russia that a number of companies have taken going beyond their legal requirements, but choosing to make a particular stand on that issue. I'm going to be fascinated to see how that plays out for the companies that have and haven't done that. Secondly, I think we should be watching the governments in the big jurisdictions and what they're requesting their industry to do, because as mentioned earlier, the government will tend to set the rules and the companies will, of course, follow them. And then the last one, I think, is again, as mentioned earlier, I'll be fascinated to see how private capital continues to evolve in terms of its approach to ESG, driven by a need for private capital to have its own investors and those investors showing an increasing interest in the topic. So those are the three things that I'm going to keep watching for this year because I think they will have the biggest ESG implications on M&A in the next 12 months and, and likely beyond. I think watching developments in the supply chain due diligence requirements that governments will impose, but I think even more so for us and for the listeners, we've lived through a number of existential crises for mankind and are in the midst of one during the last five years. Obviously, the impact of COVID-19, the, the ongoing war in Europe, and also climate change, I think are issues that we need to face head on. These are all issues that are heavily regulated and influenced and are synergistic with the ESG agenda and the ESG framework. And what I would be most interested to see in is how companies formulate strategies that are dynamic and are able to respond to things that we couldn't foresee. So I would be very interested to see how businesses go about structuring their deals to make sure that they are resilient and at the end of the day, ensure that their businesses are sustainable which really is what ESG is all about. ESG is still a relatively new concept in deal-making, and a lot of the investors and targets here are learning from other jurisdictions as to how to deal with the ESG aspects of the deal. But I think eventually, like many other issues, China will develop its own norms and localize its own policies. So we are actually seeing more laws and regulations coming up in the corporate governance and environmental space in China, and people here have also increased their awareness of the importance of ESG in deal making. So it'll be interesting to see how ESG factors will be developing in the China M&A landscape. But definitely, I agree with Joe and Ernst that actually the tie is changing and businesses in Asia will need to keep up with this trend. Joe and Ernst, thank you so much for the insightful discussions today. If you have any questions or comments on this topic, we would love to hear from you. And please be sure to tune in to the next episode of our M&A podcast series. Thank you for listening. See you again soon.